and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 119, recorded on August 17th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you extra early this week. This is like the last time for a little while that we'll be doing this early, but uh, you got a chance to come out to the Seattle area, so we had to take advantage of it. Yeah, and that's meant that we've both had a chance to have a hands-on with XFCE 4.14 together. The big news this week, XFCE 4.14 is released. Now, here's the timeline for you, just so we have perspective. 4.10 was released in 2012. 4.12 was released in 2015. And now we have 4.14 in 2019. Four years and five months of work. And I think the, the big takeaway is all of the core components are now GTK3. Just in time for GTK4, right? Hey, man, I'm still, I'm still using some crazy applications that use GTK2, so I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know anymore. But I mean, with GTK3, you're getting high DPI support in there. Yeah, and we tried that out on XPS 13 with a 4K screen, and it's almost there, isn't it? It's not quite 100% though. The way they've really implemented high DPI support is in the appearance settings, there's now a GTK scale factor by two. And that does make everything that's GTK double in size, but that doesn't increase things like your mouse cursor. It doesn't switch over your theme to a high DPI icon theme. It doesn't necessarily make the close, minimize, and maximize buttons in the title bar larger. It doesn't even necessarily make the menu bar larger. There's still tweaks you have to make, but if XFCE has been your desktop of choice and you've just recently moved to a high DPI system, it can do it now. It's not perfect. It, honestly, it, it feels about as much fiddling as Plasma feels like it takes. Other desktops are smoother. Elementary nails it. But it's doable. I actually checked out 4.14 on two different distros. One was Endeavor OS, which is essentially Arch. And then the other is the Ubuntu 19.10 daily image. And both seemed fairly similar to me. Zubuntu Daily is what uh, I tried out too. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to try it out. It's it's not an, a, an impressive theme out of the box, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the things the project doesn't really bother with. They let you set that. But there is enough fundamentals here. The new display dialog has received a lot of attention. It has profiles now for multi-monitor configuration. There is sweet little uh, just tweaks to different aspects of the setting screens. The file manager has received a lot of bug fixes. Overall, very rounded update. My favorite feature I have to call out is in the official notifications service now, they've gained support for what they call persistence. In other words, notification logging and do not disturb mode, which I had to hack around to do not disturb mode on XFCE in the past because that's like the number one thing in 2019 when you if you don't need high DPI and you sit down at an XFCE desktop, the notifications are just a nightmare if you get a lot of them. And so having this is like the feature, the feature that I wanted in XFCE. This is my feature right here. I'm very happy to see it. Nice. But before you go dissing the theme too much, maybe I should turn my laptop around and show you that I use uh, oh, my goodness. the same theme oh, my goodness. on 1804. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it works for some people, right? It's I think when you look at the screenshots of XFCE with that theme, which is what's all over the project's website and Zubuntu's website, I think it's a big turnoff for a lot of people. Because um, you can throw Arc Dark on there, and it looks like, it pretty much looks like a GNOME shell desktop. Yeah. But I'm just happy enough with the default. Yeah. It's fine. It's easy enough to change too, right? So yeah. I, I, you probably, I don't know if you noticed, this is just like a really small feature they snuck in there in Parole, which is their media player on XFCE. It's based on top of GStreamer. They've added more support for network streams, but more importantly for you and I, podcast support. 
Yes, very nice. One of the big features, though, is the multi-monitor support now. In the display settings, they've got an extra tab where you can save profiles for different combinations of screens, which is something that I think you're potentially going to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Did not get a chance to try that because the XPS I have doesn't have a display connector that works with my monitors. But when I do get this loaded on my main desktop, totally taking advantage of that. And I could see this, too, on the ThinkPad. I travel between the studio and home a lot, and I have a small screen at, at the RV, and I have a couple of different screen options here. So I will have a chance to play with it. And I hope, I hope, I hope this solves my multi-monitor issues I've had. I've got some bad news, I'm afraid. The bit of testing that I did with uh, a laptop that's 720p and a 1080p external monitor over HDMI, it worked fine, but then I rebooted and just there was nothing on the screen. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's about what I get now. So (laughs) Yeah. That's that's fine. All right. A bit of work there needed, I think. Hmm. Good release overall. I think probably you and I might be the most uh, excited people listening to the show, (laughs) though. (laughs) It's just, you know, XFCE isn't the uh, desktop that everybody thinks of as the big splashy desktop. But I sure have learned to appreciate its just-get-work-done attitude and the slow pace of change, but still still implementing things like GTK3 over time actually kind of works for my current usage. Well, yeah, I'm probably going to end up using this in Zubuntu 20.04, and by then it should hopefully have matured significantly, and these bugs that I've been talking about would have been ironed out, and yet it will be modern enough. Okay, we'll probably be looking at some GTK4 applications and stuff by then, but realistically, most of the stuff that I use that will be in 2004 will just look absolutely fine. And so it's it's slow pace, but that's what's good about it. That's why I like it. They, they're not made any massive changes. It just looks like XFCE still, and I'm going to be happily using it for many years to come, I think. Yeah, it was funny when you said you were going to wait for 2004. To I'm like, I want to upgrade right now. I want the Do Not Disturb stuff right now. But that is sort of silly with XFCE. It's slow incremental updates. Why rush? Wait for it to get refined. Kubernetes might be seeing a little bit of refinement after a recent security audit, though. Yeah, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation, put together a security audit working group, and they selected a couple of companies to do the actual audit of Kubernetes. And they've done it all completely out in the open from the very start of the process to now the end where we've got the results of the audit. Yeah, the process took them, looks like about four months, and the two different companies is an interesting way to do this. So hence the security audit working group. They managed these two different contractors that went through a whole process of selection. And isn't this just kind of the thing you love, seeing some Linux Foundation money be spent on? And they even produced a few CVEs and security bugs from this thing. And really, for the most part, it was a lot of best practices or inconsistent practices throughout the large project that weren't really being properly followed. But it is very important for a project of this size to have been audited because there's a lot of code out there, a lot of projects that have never been subject to an audit, and we just don't know necessarily whether there are some seriously bad practices going on there and some potentially unknown zero days in there. So you're right, this is exactly what the Linux Foundation should be spending money on. 
what we got as a result is four different papers, a Kubernetes security review paper attacking and defending Kubernetes installations, a white paper that covers it all, and different threat models that we're looking at. There was also a good batch of ancillary data that was created by these two companies that's also being published. If you are deploying Kubernetes in production, some of these can be consumed pretty quickly and give you a good overview of best practices that should be implemented in your own Kubernetes setup as well. That was another thing the researchers found, is that some end users are not properly implementing and securing their systems. And a lot of times it comes down to inconsistent TLS implementations and just basic stuff that is easy to overlook, but an aggregate creates problems. So with Kubernetes out of the way, you have to wonder what's next for an audit. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, this process appears to be partially inspired by the core infrastructure initiative, and they have a best practices badge program. (laughs) (laughs) You can get a badge when you're all secure. And then the Linux Foundation bestows this badge upon you, and it's a way for open source projects to show that they follow security best practices, which... I honestly could be respected in the industry over time. I could actually see this working. It's kind of a clever idea, and people will want their badge. And the Linux Foundation argues that consumers of the badge can quickly assess which open source projects have followed these best practices and will then be more comfortable selecting open source software and, in theory, select projects that are of higher quality and better audited and better secured, which means more secure software being deployed. Well, that's true, but there is a flip side to that. It means that you've got the open source projects that are well-funded, backed by huge companies that will get the badge and can afford to go through these audits and stuff, whereas the smaller projects that potentially are as secure and perfectly well-written won't be able to afford that, and so you end up with a two-tier system. True, although it's also an opportunity for the community to create their own process and maybe their own badge system. I could actually see if this is a if this is a reoccurring thing where high profile projects are audited by two different groups. So you you have people that are essentially peer reviewing each other's work, and then you release all of the findings up on GitHub like they've done. That could start a trend, and maybe the community will come up with their own community certified badge, millions of eyes viewing the source code kind of badge, and you could just have a big seeing eye like a eye of Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> So what you're saying is uh, we're going to get one new standard and we should create another one as well. Seems like a pretty solid prediction to me. (laughs) And then we'll need a standard that covers all those standards, Joe. (laughs) You can see the process is already starting. In all, they identified 34 vulnerabilities, four of which were high severity, 15 of which were medium, eight low, and that seven were just informational. Uh, That's some decent results. And as you'd expect, the Kubernetes project is already releasing updates to address these security issues. Well, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation were very keen to have this all be out in the open, and that's something Google is also trying to do with AMP, right? The newer, bigger, faster AMP now is server-side rendering, which is going to change everything, and they say will increase a whopping 50% on a popular metric called the FCP metric. Faster page loads, and get ready for this, Joe, server-side script rendering. That sounds like an amazing new innovation to me. It'll be it'll be a big change, you know, something consumers have never seen before, and uh, obviously will take AMP to the next level. Of course, the downside of all of this means is that uh, JavaScript is working its way into AMP, essentially, which is remarkable since AMP essentially started as a way to avoid really heavy scripted websites and deliver you just the results. <laughs> We're just... 
we're essentially seeing a re-implementation of the web in AMP. It's, to me, the ultimate power grab by Google. Well, do you remember when it used to be called Accelerated Mobile Pages? Mm-hmm. And they've just dropped that now, and now it's just AMP. Yeah. AMP plus SSR now for server-side rendering. There's been a lot of backlash to this, because although it does mean that you can serve your pages more quickly and potentially compete with the Google cached stuff, it's just not enough, really, because the feature creep that we've seen with AMP, the, the JavaScript, okay, they're limiting the size of the JavaScript that you can use, and they're trying to kind of keep the whole thing as tight and efficient as possible. But at this point, it just is a re-implementation of the web. And they've already hooked in a bunch of publishers by essentially forcing them to use AMP in order to appear in the search results in a decent position and kind of sold the idea on one premise of it being a just a very slim HTML page. And now... Over the last few years, we've seen more and more features come in that it's just essentially a standard website. Yeah, it's a little bit of JavaScript now, but before there was no JavaScript. So it could be a lot more JavaScript down the, down the road. And, and I bet the next announcement from the team over at uh, the AMP Council now will be they're, they're going to introduce this grand new feature called Common Gateway Interfaces. And you're going to love it, Joe. It's just going to be a great way to have active uh, web server applications. <laughs> it's, um, I guess I'm, I'm really kind of getting, I guess I'm getting a little sick of what seems to be just a continual feature creep of AMP to take over the way we do web pages. And I hoped that when they went to this new council format of advisors, we'd see something a little more dialed down. But what we're seeing to me seems to be a more aggressive grab. And it's the worst part is, is we're still not solving the core issues of poor websites and poor server performance. And we're re-implementing things that we already have solutions for to get something that really only seems to benefit Google. There is some end-user benefit, but there's nothing inherently unique about AMP that you couldn't provide directly as a publisher if you just invested a little bit in the technology. Well, this is all interesting in relation to some stats that I saw this week from JumpShot, which is the data arm of Avast, which shows that we've now reached over 50% of Google searches that don't result in a click through to a website because often there'll just be a summary of the information that people needed and therefore they don't need to go to the website and potentially see the ads on the publisher's site. They just see the ads that Google are serving. Yeah, I think it's a combo of factors. These zero-click searches, as they're being called, is in part because Google's scraping a lot of sites and then they offer up these knowledge cards, like you say, and then you just get the answer. Or there are more and more decent Google properties. When I search for flight info, I just tend to use Google Flights now. It's a, it starts right there in the search results, and I just engage with it. And then next thing you know, I'm booking my flight through Google Flights. And it's kind of convenient. And the prices seem to be fairly competitive. And I think, in some regard, part of why they're seeing less click-throughs is because they're building better and better content. And also because they're displaying things in previews and knowledge cards and whatnot. But I wouldn't have any illusions. This is still good for Google. People spending time on their website, viewing ads. Still making them money. Joe, I think we could summarize this by quoting at DZ on Twitter. Google backdoored themselves into having an alternative HTML spec that many media companies must follow for competitive reasons. And to be honest, we're all still just a little upset about it. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, last week we talked about Linux Journal shutting down 
And unfortunately, this week we have to talk about osdisc.com shutting down. When's the last time you ordered a DVD or CD-ROM disc for a Linux distro? Uh, one or two weeks ago. No. Shut up. <laughs> never. Oh. <laughs> no way. Never? Never? I've done it once or twice, maybe. No, I mean, even back when I started, which wasn't that long ago, like 2007-ish, my internet connection was fast enough to get the ISOs, and I had a bunch of blank CDs and just burnt all my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really, once the speeds of home internet connections got fast enough and USB thumb drives became so, like, available, it just didn't really make sense. I actually kind of held out for a long time. I liked having disks because I could write the disk on there and it was, like, frozen in time. I could put it on the shelf. And it wasn't, you know, you, I just would, that feels wasteful to do it with a thumb drive. But with a disk, it was like, ah, I've captured a, a point in time. Ramsey's the OS disk founder, and the email out to customers starts so classy. After over 16 years, he writes, OSDisk.com has closed. If you've ordered from us, help is still available by emailing support at OSDisk.com. That is so classy. Like, even though we're shutting down, we're still going to try to answer your emails for your DVDs and CDs that you might have trouble with. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did have a dig around on the website, and that's the first thing it hits you is this message. But you can get rid of that and, and view their inventory. And really, I think it was more about the flash drives preloaded with various distros. And you could get kind of slow USB 2 ones or, for a bit more money, fast USB 3 ones. But if you go to buy any of them now, they add to cart or whatever, then unfortunately the message pops up again and says, no, no can do. Not horrible prices either. 15 bucks for a 16 gig flash drive preloaded with Ubuntu 19.04. For some people, that's that's not bad. I mean, there are people that have very limited internet connections and it's worth that money to get that. I suppose, but with things like Etcher these days that make it really easy to use a GUI to get the image onto a USB stick and increasing speeds everywhere... It just kind of feels like it belongs to a bygone era. They did move on to flash drives from the DVDs and CDs, and I think that it's just the end of the road has been reached here. Well, clearly it has. 2019 feels like it's been a few of those. A few things that are of a bygone era that are sort of spinning down. I mean, 16 years is a long time to serve uh, the Linux customer base, so tip of the hat to Ramsey for that. And my my new approach when I'm on limited bandwidth connections now is any time a distribution offers a net installation option, I am using it. I have just had the best results with the Fedora net install medium. You can choose every desktop. It's like it's almost better. You get more options, and you get you get you get a smaller ISO. It's like it's my it's my favorite combo is more options, smaller ISO, and it only pulls down the packages I need to get that install. And so that's been my way on on more bandwidth constrained setups. Ironically, I use the network install. Yeah, I've always used that for Debian. Yes, yeah. it's just the way to do it. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It, you know, FreeBSD has one like just. Tons of different distros have net installs, and it's a good way to go if you if you can't go buy yourself a thumb drive, I suppose. But congratulations to Ramsey for 16 years of uh, shipping over 300,000 disks and USB drives. That's a lot of new Linux users. It, even if some of them already had Linux, you know at least a percentage of those were new, and that's pretty great. Uh, and uh, they answered over 25,000 tech support tickets in their 16-year run. Wow. Well, it's just a summer shorty from us this week, so check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe to get all future episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. 
And new content alert, Jupiter Extras, extras.show. Go subscribe. All kinds of surprises will be showing up in that feed. The first of which is a complete talk from Texas Linux Fest, the keynote, a fantastic talk about why the distro wars need to die. And next up in the feed, the whole Choose Linux crew get together to talk about L's recent trip to Black Hat, B-Sides, DEF CON, and more from Hacker Summer Camp. Yeah, we had good fun chatting together in person. So yeah, do check that out, extras.show. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Later.